I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Before we get started, I just want to make a quick announcement. We're looking for an intern for the summer, somebody based in Washington, D.C., who could Come in on Mondays, help us with some research over the weekends. Uh, send us an email if you're interested at hangup at slate.com. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of April 10th, 2017. On this week's show, we'll talk about Sergio Garcia's triumph at the Masters and Russell Westbrook's triple-double record and the start of baseball season and the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, One and Not Done, about John Calipari. We're going to have guests for all of those segments. Shall I name them? Sure. Slate's Jim Newell, ESPN's Tom Haberstrow, Meg Rowley of Baseball Prospectus, and documentary filmmaker John Hawk. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, the man who answers my prompts when I prompt him. He's the author of the books, Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Thank you for the assist. I think I think that was one assist. We have a friendly hometown scorekeeper. How are you, Stefan? I'm good. I was the, I'm the triple-double of prompts. <laughs> uh, in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, I'm just going to get right into it Go today. Go for it. No need for chit-chat. So I figure we'll just have Hawk stick around for a little bit longer. We'll do some uh, some bonus commentary on the Kalapari uh, movie and maybe we'll have him talk about officiating your wedding. Mm-hmm. Could do. I don't that. know if we've. I don't know if we've done that before. No, I don't think we've ever done that. Uh, can you give us a little preview? He officiated the wedding. It wasn't <laughs> real. He wasn't like licensed or anything. We had already. It we wasn't had already, real. We already gotten married. He was more like. A, he was more like the. Uh, You've been Alex living Trebek of our wedding. <laughs> In that he's Canadian and had a mustache. Mm-hmm. Um, little known facts about Jonathan Hawk. You didn't even need to join Slate Plus. To hear that tidbit, but just imagine how much more you could get the rich for just for just forty nine dollars a year. The depth you'll get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. 
Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Five years ago at the Masters, after shooting a round of 75 on Saturday at Augusta National, Sergio Garcia said he wasn't good enough to win one of golf's major championships, that in 13 years, I've come to the conclusion that I need to play for second or third place. Well, it turned out he was a huge idiot because he did win a major. That really showed him what a moron. He beat out Justin Rose in a sudden death playoff to win the Masters uh, this weekend. It took the 37-year-old Garcia 70 starts in major championships as a pro to win one, which is an all-time record. Joining us now in luxurious Pesca cabin is Slate's congressional and country club correspondent, Jim Newell. Hello, Jim. Hi. Happy to be here. Just <laughs> Stefan is going to generate some faux uh, bird sounds for us during the interview. It's very nice. Soothing. So I remember very well the 1999 PGA when Sergio was dueling with Tiger Woods. He was 19 at the time, and he hit this shot that's one of the most famous shots in a major championship in the last couple decades, where he was behind a tree on the 16th hole. He hits this like crazy like hooking shot, and it ends up on the green, and he does this like little run and scissor kick. He's exuberant, and he lost to Tiger, but after that tournament, people were saying, this is Tiger Woods' rival. This guy is going to win many major championships, and it didn't happen. And Sergio, as I said in the introduction, he seemed resigned to the fact that it wasn't going to happen. And that all that together made this, I think, one of the most memorable Sundays at a major in a long time. Like People like you who care about golf were super thrilled that Sergio Garcia finally won a major title. Yeah, and couldn't really believe that it was happening because he was sort of getting to be this age and this, this uh, length into his career where if they haven't done it yet, then there's something that they can't get through mentally. You thought he was going to be there with Colin Montgomery or Lee Westwood as these other, you know, incredible players who could never get it done. And, I mean, with Sergio, he gets so down on himself too. You know, he, he like you said, five years ago, he's like, oh, I'm not good enough. I remember there was another time, uh, two or three years ago at the Masters, he had a good first round. And they asked, I think he was in the lead after the first round. And they asked him, like, oh, are you optimistic about this? And he's like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> Like, he gets really down on himself, and um, I, I, it's just sort of shocking. I mean, it's sort of like the first time Phil won the Masters, where you couldn't believe this thing could actually happen. I don't know what the analog would be in another sport. You know, if it'd be, it probably wouldn't be like the Cubs winning the World Series. It'd be like, I don't know, the well, White Sox or something. So the White Sox did win a World Series, not that Well, long I know, ago. but that was like a 70-year gap or something, right? Well, I think the difference in golf versus team sports is that the narrative actually makes sense. Like with the Cubs, it's not like it was the same dudes for 108 years who are trying to win right, it yeah. every year and failing. Or like the same coaches or owners or, or management. There is like a, a reasonable narrative around the fact that Sergio Garcia right. didn't win. That, And he, again, even said it himself, that he just didn't have, whether it was like mentally or whether his putting just sucked too badly to win. I mean, I saw somebody on Twitter compared it to John Elway as far as, extreme late career rewriting of narrative around who this guy is and and what he's accomplished. And I think with Sergio, with any golfer at his level, I mean, you have to be so incredibly good to win as many tournaments as he has, non-majors, over the course of a career, to sustain your career for almost 20 years now as a professional, but to not have the ability to win one of these because – 
in your own words, you're not mentally strong enough is remarkable because we think of these athletes as the defining trait that separates them from other athletes who can be at the same physical level, who may have good shot making abilities, who may be great putters, who may be able to win a tournament here and there. What separates the, the athlete, the golfer that survives for 20 years is that he has the mental strength. And for a golfer of his caliber for so long to say so frequently, I don't have it, is kind of strange. I mean, that's what perplexes me always about Sergio. Like, you don't see athletes questioning their confidence as frequently as this guy did over the course of his career. Yeah, I mean, he's, you know, he's been one of the, I think there may be a a couple years in the 2000s where he fell off a little bit, but he's been one of the top 10 or 20 golfers for, yeah, almost 20 years. And he just, I, you know, you get to a point, though, and this happened to some other players, like before Jason Day won his first major, he sort of got in the headspace of, you know, I'm, I'm playing for second place, sort of. Um, yeah, but Jason but, Day was like 25 years old. Yeah, yeah, I, exactly. Um, but, you know, someone like Justin Rose, he's a person who, you know, knows he's good enough to win and expects to win. And, that, I mean, that's why I thought that once Sergio, you know, hit it under a bush on 13 or something – Sergio's demons were just going to come out and be like, oh, well, that was it. Right. I made it farther than I usually I mean, that's make the it. moment I texted Josh and just said, OMG, Sergio. I mean, it was yeah. like, here we go again. Yeah. Um, I mean, the guy's won 30 tournaments and $60 million. I mean, he's an incredible golfer. You know, he's one of the greatest golfers of his generation, no question. But to have a golfer with, with, the, with the mental weakness that he needs to win a major to say, hey, I have a great – this validates my career is pretty remarkable. So on 18, he missed a putt out to the right. He said it was a misread rather than just like his limbs totally betraying him at that moment. Do you buy that he misread the putt? You know, I, w- I was getting so nervous because if you looked at his putt on 17, which and he two putted it for the par, which is what he needed. But it was the ugliest stroke I've ever seen on yeah. 17, the first one, because it's like he came in way from the inside and almost like slice hit the putt a little bit. It was not a confident stroke. And I was like, you know, here it's going to happen again. And then 18, I mean, he just... I can see that being a misread, although I, I don't know why he thought – I mean, he, he put it out to the right and it actually, if anything, turned a little bit more to the right. So I, I was really surprised. I mean, I was just like – you know, I was like like clutching like a pillow watching this. <laughs> like I was so I was so nervous. I, I couldn't imagine what he was out there. I mean, what was most impressive about him though, like his iron game and his driving have always been the strengths of his career and those did not – abandoned him at all with all the nervousness. There are a couple of shaky putts, but... Except for the, the drive on 13. Well, except for the drive, I, I mean, that was sort of just, you know, that was something where he was probably 10 feet away from where he wanted to be. Like, he had been doing that the other days, that big high fade over the trees. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't think that was, you know, that wasn't like a, a huge error. It was, just, it was just a high-risk shot to begin with. So I'm curious how you disaggregate, Jim. Like, in the last round of a major, people, I think, I think, ascribe every, like, bad shot to nerves. And, you know, Jordan Spieth, he went in the water again on 12, as he did the previous year. But he's won a Masters. He, like, clearly has the mental fortitude to win a major championship. How do we know, like, when Sergio fucked up that shot on 13 or um, or whether it's another player, um, whether it's because the pressure is getting to them or because even the greatest golfers in the world, you're going to make a bogey on the back nine on whatever day it is. I mean, you could just sort of look at the swing and if it's like a really bad, 
you know, swipe at it. If if you just if you take on an aggressive shot and, you know, it doesn't work out and you end up under a bush, then <laughs> that'll happen. I mean, 13 is like a famously hard tee shot. But, um, I mean, if they're just, you know, if, if they're making their, their, a solid swing, then, then you can, I don't know, then, then you can tell if it's not really falling apart. But and also, if you tell, if, if they're taking like 20 seconds addressing the ball before they pull back the club and swinging it, then you can tell they're nervous. I mean, you can also, I mean, it was so tense out there. I mean, it's impossible that, that they weren't feeling nerves, except for Justin Rose, who I think is really calm under pressure. And I, so I was surprised that he was not able to close it out because he really is, I mean, like suited for those moments. And close it out, of course, means sliding a putt a three quarters of an inch by the hole. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you did see the contrast between their two personalities. Um, and Justin Rose talked about it afterward. I thought I was going to win. Yeah. I mean, he very bluntly said, I'm confident in these situations. I thought I was going to win the tournament. And he also yeah, said, I'm going to win. He also I mean, said, I'm going to win you know, next year. or uh, Right. I'm right. going to win again here maybe more than once. Yeah. I somehow just managed to turn it on right when they were showing a replay of, I think it was on 13. There were pine needles involved. And there was a suggestion that perhaps a viewer had called in who had like watched this footage uh, in, I don't know, super duper extreme golf uh, fan slow motion yeah. and was going to like call in the worst people and, in the world and give Sergio an 18 shot penalty. Um, it just, the ball didn't move at all. Like what is wrong with these people? Yeah. I, I think, I you know I read somewhere else that, that maybe that came from, you know, it wasn't the like, the like jackass back home or something. It was, you know, the hundred jackasses they have on staff at Augusta national who just like scour over tape and are like, Oh, I may have seen a dimple, you know, oscillate a little bit or something. Um, yeah, I was. I think everyone was really happy that nothing oh, came imagine? out of that. I can't imagine, especially after what happened on the LPGA tour where Lexi Thompson right. the week earlier. Can we be? Can we be sure that somebody's not going to call in like today or next week and say that the ball was <laughs> oscillating? Because the thing that was weird about the Lexi Thompson one is that they called in about something that had happened the previous day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, maybe by the time the podcast comes out, uh, Justin Rose will have won after all because of uh, some ball oscillation. I mean, the only good thing about this is that they're doing a whole rewrite of the, of the rules of golf right now and, I, and, and the rules of the tour where I think that they are, um, you know, not going to allow these like people to call in from their couches or whatever to, to tattle on people. But, you know, because it's golf and everything happens very slowly, there's like a, you know, 80-year review period yeah. or something golf, before any of that golf comes fans on the, Golf fans on their couches are the new bloggers in their mother's <laughs> basement. <laughs> Thank you for calling Augusta National <laughs> Golf Club, the number you have reached. Should we do our ritual annual Jim Nance, Butler Cabin, Postmasters interview bashing? The worst 10 the most, minutes in sports. I was going to say most awkward 10 minutes in most sports. Most awkward. I think it's also the worst. I mean, and, and it's also the best. Because it's just so bizarre. You know, Jim Nance kind of walks in off camera and the low amateur comes in and sits down and they're all coming in from somewhere else. And it looks, you know, for, for all it's that very we're told, Hello, we're Jim. told congratulations that, on your great performance And today. we're told how Butler Cabin is this august, austere place. It looks like a set. I mean, yeah, it's a it TV like studio. A, it's a TV studio. It's embarrassing. Though I did like the low amateur this year basically saying, eh, I'm not good enough to play on the Pro Tour. I'm going to keep my job on Wall Street. I just feel like he's really going to grow the game. It was just really inspirational to see 
a 20-something white guy say, like, mm-hmm. you know, I can be good at this game even though I'm a financial analyst in New York. It's yeah. like I just went out and started practicing on my front on my front lawn after that. I'm going to be there. I'm going to do it next I'm try- year. I'm trying to determine whether I would like the Masters any more if Jim Nance weren't involved or is Jim Nance's participation – so emblematic of what the master stands for that to take him away would actually detract from from the event. Yeah, I, 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 it's hard to imagine it without Jim Nance and all of the the terrible. You know, he just gets so excited about a storyline, and you know this whole thing about. And I know it meant a little bit to Sergio, but the whole thing about it being Seve Ballesteros's would have been his 60th birthday. Like you know, Jim Nance has a team of like ten researchers being like, find me a storyline, like get me something. And, you know, it's not like it, it always has to be for him like, you know, the gods made it to be this way or whatever. And it's just, yeah, it, it, it's really tiresome here's what, here's and syrupy. What, here's what your Jim Nance's closing line yesterday. El Nino, that means the boy or the kid. El Nino is the man today. He's the champion at Augusta. Yeah. Like, it's unbelievable. I mean, when he starts on, you know, Seriously, Thursday, dude? on Thursday, he's like, the azaleas are in bloom. Yeah. The birds are chirping. It's springtime at Augusta. Nance is like I've decided like those deep thoughts by Jack Handy on Saturday <laughs> Night Live. That's Jim Nance. The azaleas are dead, Jim, so it's time for you to go. Jim Newell is uh, writes about Congress for Slate usually. Sometimes he is at the Slate putting green hoping for greater riches to come someday. Yeah. You know, I could maybe be in the Masters next year, but if not, I can come back to my job at Slate hopefully. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On Sunday night in Denver, the Oklahoma City Thunders' Russell Westbrook got his 42nd triple-double of this NBA season, breaking Oscar Robertson's all-time record. Westbrook, who has already locked down averages of greater than 10 points, 10 rebounds, and 10 assists for the full season. He's the first player, again, since Robertson to do that scored 50 points on Sunday to go along with his 16 rebounds and 10 assists. He also scored the Thunder's last 15 points, including a 36-foot three-pointer as time expired to beat the Nuggets 106-105, knocking Denver out of contention for the playoffs. While the conversation around the NBA right now is about whether Westbrook should win the MVP, I think we should be talking about the fact that during a timeout in the third quarter, Russell Westbrook invented cold fusion and also saved the ivory-billed woodpecker from extinction. But that's just me. We Overlooked. Should... Small details. Joining us now is Tom Haberstrow of ESPN, who can help us put this ivory-billed woodpecker uh, saving into context. What's up, Tom? I laughed uh, during that joke, so I don't know if people were like, that doesn't sound like Josh <laughs> or Stefan. Who's that guy? I apologize for laughing before my intro. That's a faux pas on the podcast. No, you're, you're allowed to laugh at my jokes at any point. Uh, I will allow that, that rudeness. So here's my manifesto here. You got some attention over the weekend for saying that Kawhi Leonard is your MVP. I don't understand why so much of the conversation around these great – 
um, NBA seasons that we're seeing is about which one is better than the other. And so I just want to take a few minutes at the top of the segment just to talk about how awesome Russell Westbrook is without it turning into an argument about how relatively good it is compared to Harden or Kawhi. So is that cool? Can we do that? No, we cannot. It must be <laughs> Russ is terrible and I'm a hater or Russ is the greatest player of all time and he should win every MVP for the next century. Uh, th- th- uh, it's it's either one or the other. I'm sorry. You cannot be in the middle there. So this game on Sunday, for me, was the coolest NBA regular season performance since Steph against OKC when he hit the similarly crazy uh, buzzer beating 40 foot three at the end. And this was the embodiment of everything that Westbrook has done this year, right, Tom? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was actually putting my two-month-old daughter to bed last night, and I come back in to my living room, and I flip on the Twitter, and I see the highlight, and I could not believe it. I I was like, there is no way that he just wants – did he really just do that? And I was in this, like, stupefied, like, of all things he's done, he's somehow topped it all. Um, so it was, it was like Steph in, in terms of like the clutch three, like the, the distance, um, the fact that he did it in Denver's building it, like Kawhi Leonard, LeBron, they've all had great moments, but this one, and sorry, I just made a comparison. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> it just felt like this was the exclamation point on his case. Well, and it was sort of it, like a season in microcosm. I mean, the triple double, the last three points, points get him to 50, <laughs> winning was, the game, single-handedly it, carrying the team. Yeah. I, you know, MVP or not MVP, it is one of the great regular season performances that you'll ever see. You could not craft better outcomes for I mean, we, what he did. We, in as as people who cover the sport, our job is to find meaning and narrative and story within just a bunch of, you know, successions of stats, right? And that one had it all. I mean, you could not have probably written it any better. Game winner, three-pointer, buzzer beating, to get a triple-double, 50-point triple-double, it's just it, – it underscores everything that makes Russell Westbrook great. It's the, it's the cojones. It's the, it's the guts. It's everything all bottled up into one moment. And you know what? Like it's hard, it's hard to convey how good Russell Westbrook is other than just watching that game. Like watching that game, you will get everything about Russell Westbrook. So the previous game, they were playing against Phoenix on the road. And as the game was – winding down. Westbrook was a few assists away from a triple-double and was clearly, clearly, clearly going for it in ways that were just obvious to the naked eye. He shot like six for 25. So after the game, he was like, I couldn't make anything. So I was just passing to my teammates. um, And then screaming, shoot, shoot. (laughs) I need an assist, you (laughs) bastards. So that, I think, if we're saying that this last game was the perfect microcosm for Westbrook season, it would be unfair, I think, to say that that like, obvious assist hunting was in any way a microcosm, because I think that was way more blatant than it's usually been. But So how much of his triple-doubleness this year, Tom, do you see as just totally organic, and this would have happened even if we didn't care what triple-doubles were, and how much of it was him knowing what these marks were and just going for it game after game after game. Yeah, so I I look at that game and it reminds me of how weird it is that 
if a couple guys just rim in their shot, like it bounces a funny way and it just randomly falls into the into the rim. Um, if the gust of air in the in the rafters doesn't sway the shot, then he gets that triple double. And it's just so funny how we're it's an individual stat and yet it requires a make from your teammate. It's like RBIs in baseball. You know, it's like we're gonna give Miguel Cabrera the triple crown because he got a lot of hits when there were a lot of guys on base. But you don't get the RBI unless the guy's on base. You know what I'm saying? So it's like um, it's 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 so funny how the narrative changes based on his teammates making the shot. Rather well, you than also him. have to have teammates that allow you to get as many rebounds as he's gotten as a guard, right? So Harden, like when I when I mentioned that Harden is the first 25 by 25 player in NBA history, I just made that up. The, the name of it, but it's it's pretty cool. He has t- uh, average 25 points and 25 assist points, meaning uh, no one's ever done that. And yet we don't have that same ha- hallowed like appreciation of that stat versus uh, Russell Westbrook getting rebounds. Meaning um, that so, his teammates scored 25 points per game off of Harden's assists. Correct. And a lot of the Russ defenders will say, well, Russ didn't have 25 assist points because his guys can't shoot threes like Harden's teammates can. And so a lot of his assists are going for twos rather than threes. And so the argument goes, well, if if Harden's teammates weren't as good, then we wouldn't have that stat for Harden. But I would argue that the triple-double, um, I don't think Russell Westbrook would get it if he didn't have such selfless rebounders like Steven Adams and Ennis Kanner or Taj Gibson who have regularly given rebounds to Russell Westbrook, especially at the free throw line where he is has 30 more rebounds than any other player on these freebies. When the opponent misses a free throw, he just swoops in and grabs the rebound as Steven Adams and the, the power forward at the uh, at the time will box out their guys and pump up Russ's stats. <laughs> hey, at least they're boxing those. out. Come on, boxing out is an important, important trait for an NBA yeah. player. So without and and John Schumann of NBA.com pointed this out, without the additional the bump in those free throw rebounds, Russell Westbrook would average nine point nine rebounds. And then what would what do we do? And you know, then like, what do we do? <laughs> if the guy isn't averaging triple doubles, what happens to that? Because of those free offensive rebounds or defensive rebounds off of free throws, suddenly the case is not as strong, I guess. Yeah, he still wins MVP. You think so? <laughs> Stefan, yeah. Seven thinks so. So I think that this actually connects really well to the second half of our conversation where we're going to talk about NBA players resting and Adam Silver coming out very strongly in the last week. You wrote about this, Tom, about anti-rest. Yeah, but it's bad for the league to have guys sitting out during these nationally televised games and trying to figure out what to do about it. So how to connect that to Russell Westbrook? The point of the regular season, in my view, is entertainment because it's not really possible for a team that is a championship contender to not make the playoffs. And so sometimes, you know, teams, especially if they're coached by Greg Popovich, they're like, we're going to conserve our energy for the playoffs by not playing during the regular season. We should be incredibly grateful to Russell Westbrook, to Harden, to whoever else just turns the regular season into something dramatic and exciting and fun when for a lot of these teams, it 
confers them very little advantage to do so. Totally. And I was expecting this regular season to be a dud because I think the Cavs and the Warriors would just want to fast forward to the playoffs, right? Yeah. Like, like everyone knew that it's going to be at the end. It's going to be the Warriors and the Cavs. Let's just get it over with already. Let's not, you know, waste these guys' energy. Let's not watch Kevin Durant and Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving get hurt. Like, let's just get to the playoffs. But then you have Russell Westbrook and James Harden just torching that idea. And it's so good because I was really worried that the regular season with all the math and the science pointing to these guys resting and not sacrificing uh, their injury risk, like they don't want to get these guys hurt on back-to-backs. So I thought that the DNP rest story uh, would co- totally consume the NBA. And Adam Silver has said it's the biggest issue in the NBA, but thank God for Russell Westbrook and James Harden and Isaiah Thomas because you know the Cavs weren't nearly as good as we thought they were this regular season. The Warriors weren't nearly as good as we thought. Joel Embiid was great, and then he got hurt. Um, and there are all these storylines that involve guys getting hurt, and yet here we are with James Harden and Russell Westbrook just putting on a supernova season. And Adam Silver's point is a good one. If you're going to have an 82-game season, and that's the next question, you need to have dates that will make your team's money. You need to sell out your building. You need to have television ratings, or the networks aren't going to pay you multi-billion dollars to broadcast these games going forward. So what needs to happen is, as you write about, Tom, there's got to be some rethinking of how to make the same level of money by delivering slightly less product over the course of the six-month regular season. Um, Daryl Morey articulates that pretty well. I mean, he draws the sort of NFL analogy. Scarcity is what drives attention, is what drives audience. If there were a better way to make the NBA season a little more scarce so that you don't run the risk of having to sit marquee players out, particularly on the road, when a fan in Charlotte or New Orleans wants to see LeBron or Steph uh, when they come into town for those one or two dates a year. Yeah, Daryl basically said, <laughs> would the NFL make more money if they played 82 games? No, like they wouldn't because they'd have no more players left, right? Like that that is his argument is that there's a marginal benefit. There's diminishing returns right. with the NFL because of how destructive the sport is. And I think, you know, they have a 16-game season for a very good reason. Um, and Rachel Nichols has pointed this out to me as well is like, the NFL is so successful, not just because of scarcity, but because it's so easy to gamble on. Like there's this fantasy football and gambling element that consumes people and they just can't wait till Sunday to, to lay down their money. But I'd argue that the NBA season with 82 games and no regularity when it comes to the schedule, like sometimes they play on Tuesday, Friday, sometimes they play Wednesday, Thursday, sometimes they play one game a week, sometimes they play four games a week, five games a week. And that irregularity, there's no rhythm to the season and it's harder to gamble. It's harder to place bets. It's harder to play fantasy basketball because it's such a right. It's uh, it, it's more baseball like in its irregularity. And but at the baseball same time, has it every day, you know. Sure. Like the yeah. NBA doesn't have that. And at the same time, though, the 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 rate of injury is is much higher than probably it was 30 or 40 years ago because the game is so much more destructive. It's so much faster. It's so much more powerful. It's so much more tiring. And sure, there are. There are factors that, that, that mitigate that a little bit. They travel better. They're smarter about their health. We talked about this last week. They don't drink as much. They don't go out as much. But by the same token, it's still 82 games in a very compressed time period, often on back-to-backs, taking long flights around well, the country. My question, Tom, is what 
can Adam Silver do? Let's stipulate that they stick with 82 games. Do you think that he can effectively shame uh, franchises or institute um, penalties that would be draconian enough that would um, make them reconsider this idea that resting is the smart approach? And is, I mean, and and our penalties the right approach? I think I think the right approach is getting rid of back to backs by reducing the games in the season and increasing the scarcity so that people are excited and know what games are on that week. Well, I know that's it, what you think the right approach is, <laughs> but I don't think that's going to happen, dude. <laughs> you just so, ignored the premise of Josh's questions, which was that he's stipulating that we have to stick with yeah, 82 I, games. I stipulated I was, it. <laughs> I was getting to my next point, which is that's what I believe is the correct way, or in my opinion, the correct way. Because the other way encourages teams to play their stars on back-to-backs where it's like you can find them or they can get injured. And Adam Silver has already made this point, which is it's really tricky because if they say, all right, he has to play on that back-to-back or else we're going to fine you, and then that guy plays and blows out his knee, what happens then? Can the the player sue the league? Um, Because he's shortening his career – by forcing to play when the injury risk is high because that's what Adam Silver is suggesting or owners are suggesting is like we need to ha- institute a uh, a penalty for resting guys even though they're on back-to-back. So I is, just think that's what a really... What does play mean anyway? Does it mean one minute, five minutes? Are they going to institute minimums for what a top-tier player has to play in on a, on a given night? I and mean, I, that's insane. And Duran also made the point that on teams that are tanking, like nobody has said a word about the Suns like sitting out Tyson Chandler. It's only for teams at the very top tier and for the star players. It only affects, you know, a certain number of guys that are actually like the ticket sellers and the ratings getters. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's it's interesting that we have fans clapping and cheering when their teams lose. Like there is a this system is broken. And I think Adam Silver knows it. He said it in the in the press conference the other day. He's like, we have teams, quote unquote, jockeying for position, for draft position. He has teams rebuilding. He will not say the tanking word uh, because that is a buzzword. But I think when you have Lakers fans and Suns fans and Knicks fans all cheering when their teams lose, I think that's a problem. And I think one of the... One of the issues that we have is that there's just too many games. And so you have basically the third, the last 30 games of the season are useless for a lot of these teams. And they're, the attendance is down. The ratings are down for those games. And they're shutting down their best players. So for the fans, it's just a diluted product. And I think if you cut the games, not only do you see fewer teams resting their superstars, which is the big problem because that's you know it's a superstar league. That's what people come to see. But also you don't have as many games of a loss from right. from fans just tuning out because their team is tanking. Right. But records, but history. 30 seconds, defend Kawhi Leonard as your MVP. We didn't even let you do that. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I don't even know if he's MVP in my book after last night in Russell Westbrook. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I think I think it's an argument for defense. Um, the guy is the best perimeter defender in the NBA, and Russell Westbrook and James Harden don't bring it on that end of the floor. So if we think that defense should matter in this conversation, then I think Kawhi Leonard has a, an outstanding case considering that team won 61 games and counting, um, and Russell Westbrook's OKC Thunder are doing just about as well as we thought. I think Kawhi Leonard has taken his game to another level, just like Russ, but he does it on both ends. Plus, his teammates don't let him get those cheap free throw rebounds that yeah. offend you so much. Uh, <laughs> Tom Haverstrow, 
is a writer for ESPN. Uh, he wrote a story about this DNP rest situation that came out last week. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, guys. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many yeah, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The first week of Major League Baseball is in the books. And Stefan, who do you think the face of the first week of Major League Baseball was? Was it Noah Syndergaard? I think it was Dallas Braden in the ESPN booth because <laughs> that is one interesting face. He does have an interesting face. So our guest, uh, Meg Rowley of Baseball Prospectus this week, uh, wrote a piece about the lack of uh, faces in Major League Baseball. Baseball's face blindness, could we say? Uh, Meg, <laughs> like uh, Meg is joining us on uh, the phone now. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Sure. And this has been something that's been talked about in the sport since uh, Derek Jeter said goodbye, that there's not really someone other than perhaps Bryce Harper, who a sports fan who does not think of themselves as a baseball fan, really identifies with the sport. And so there are two questions asked there. Like, number one, do we believe that that's true? And is that different than how it's been throughout baseball's history? And two, does that matter? Um, I think it is true. I mean, um, when you look at sort of the market research surrounding uh, their identifiability to fans of, you know, football or basketball, I think there is sort of a gap where um, the sort of most famous players that you might look at have been retired or, or even dead for a long time, <laughs> um, which you think might present something of a problem to the sport. But I do wonder how much we're conflating um, a marketing problem with an actual existential problem for baseball. I mean, obviously, the, the league has to make money. The teams have to make money so that we can all enjoy baseball. Uh, but it's always been sort of local and regional. And I think that as you've seen the expansion of the game globally and you look at how diverse the player pool is, I wonder if we're not, you know, as I wrote in that piece, sort of misunderstanding one of the great strengths of baseball, which is that it isn't dependent on, you know, a Tom Brady or a LeBron to sort of carry it. And you're able to look at, you know, your team of guys and find the one who you most identify with, who looks like you and sort of speaks to the way you understand the game. And I think that while that might limit, you know, the ability of the league to help sell shoes, it does present this opportunity for us to connect in a way that I think is much more personal and authentic than most uh, sort of very carefully market-tested, manicured uh, sports personalities often present us with as, as and fans. I, and I'm not so sure that we need those those transcendent personalities for a sport to succeed the way we might have in an earlier generation. And I think it also discounts the fact that I bet there are a lot of Latin American fans that do feel like there are players that that are standout figures in their communities, in their minds, in their lives. But the local aspect is what is 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 I think what you really nail there, Meg. It's that you know it's who is in your market that you care about, who is in the market that is driving a kid or a high school kid or a, a fan that's willing to go out to the game, and we make those identities. I mean, to me, it's it's not 
not analogous to hockey, which is, we've discussed, it's sort of a niche sport that people are totally passionate about. And I think baseball may be trending in that direction, where it is that it is those loyalties that continue to allow the sport to generate seven, eight, ten billion dollars a year in revenue. Well, I think we're in sort of a, I'll be interested to see how this answer changes in a couple of years, because I think we're at sort of an interesting transition point for how um, how baseball understands itself in terms of how comfortable it is with players who do not fit into, you know, Derek Jeter was great for baseball because he didn't bother anybody, right? Like he played the game, he was the captain, he played in a major market, um, and he, he was pretty like unoffensive as Boy. a baseball player goes which many was boring. Exactly. And, and now we're in this period where I think the, you know, the, the laces are loosening up a little bit and you're looking at guys who, whether they, um, you know, just are obviously joyful and sort of effervescent in the way they, they play. Like I think of how Francisco Lindor plays and I doubt he's offensive to anyone, but he's very expressive, right? He's got that great smile. He's an amazing player. And then you have guys who are sort of you know, maybe more taciturn or mercurial, or they do things that are more controversial to a certain segment of the baseball fan population, like bat flip. And we're kind of getting a little more comfortable with that. It's an uncomfortable transition for some people because I think it's changing the way that they've interacted with uh, the values they think baseball presents. But I don't know, maybe in a couple of years, this answer looks really different because we've let these guys be themselves in a way that is more appealing to fans. And maybe a couple guys sort of break through based on that. You know, it's hard to watch some of the really young dynamic players in the sport right now and not think that, you know, one of these guys is going to latch on. So uh, I'll be curious to see sort of how it changes over time. So in the off season, a lot of the talk about the sport writ large was around rule changes, whether it was the kind of like meaningless and cosmetic, um, you know, intentional walk shift where now you can just signal instead of, um, you know, actually throwing the four pitches or things like, you know, speeding up games and other ways that have been proposed, like putting, uh, you know, guys on base in the extra innings. It's something that's going to be experimented on in the lower levels of the sport. Do you think that speaks to a feeling in the commissioner's office that the sport is, you know, you could term it as an existential crisis if you want to be <laughs> Uh, more alarmist, or you could say that it's like at an inflection point and needs to start appealing to younger fans. Like how, how does this reflect on baseball's kind of conception of itself? Well, I think, I I mean, one thing I will say is that, uh, so I'm not a parent, but I imagine the parents fret in advance of a problem. And uh, that's sort of one of the responsibilities of the commissioner, right? He doesn't want the, the game to get to a point where if there's sort of a watchability problem that is um, hard to come back from. And so I think that, you know, whatever you might think of the specific rule changes that Manfred sort of puts out there as trial balloons, he does seem open to a conversation about how enjoyable baseball is to watch on an inning by inning basis and open to potential solutions. We might look at them as sort of overcorrecting a problem that may or may not exist, but he wants to sort of explore where that boundary line is between baseball having its own pace and taking its own time and being sort of a slog that no one likes. And I think the the real um, problem at the heart of these pace of play conversations is this fear we all have that we're going to wake up one day and not like baseball anymore. And that might be a real bummer because we seem to like it a lot now. Um, but I, I think that they 
they seem to think that games are not only too long, um, they they sort of improved in terms of their average playtime. So um, you might remember there were a bunch of pace of play changes that came in before the 2015 season and the average time of game did did dip a bit from 2014 and it's back over three hours for the 2016 season. Um, but not only that they're too long potentially, but that there's a, a slowdown in the action. And I think that it is something of an existential crisis insofar as it seems that a lot of the things that are slowing down the game um, are the result of a smarter uh, assessment of what is effective in games, right? So a big part of this is uh, relief pitchers coming in and out to sort of specialize in particular moments. And that impulse to make smart baseball choices isn't going to go anywhere. And I think that Manfred probably knows that. And so if you're going to intervene on that in order to um, make the game go faster, I think he recognizes it's going to be a rule change. But I, I'm not convinced that this is as big a, a problem as uh, as he maybe makes it out to be because as you noted like this sports never made more money than it does now so i don't know uh if it is a problem for existing fans but i do think it is sort of seen as a barrier to entry for new fans and they have to grapple with that uh let's talk a little bit about sort of how what you're seeing at the start of this season and how it uh connects to some of these issues Um, a lot of the conversation over the last year in addition has been about home runs and strikeouts and whether those sort of are entertaining for fans and how much they contribute to pace of play um, and the kind of players that teams are choosing to feature who, you know, who, who specialize in that as a strategy for teams too. Well, in the early going, and again, like we can't say a whole Small lot yet. Size. Right. Although, you know, those two things tend to stabilize pretty quickly, which is, you know, one of the, the few stats that we can start to sort of dig into early on. And it, it so far has been sort of a similar, I, I haven't looked at exactly what the rates are compared to this time last year, but it seems like it's pretty similar. Um, I personally enjoy both of those things and find them uh, interesting and dynamic. I think that part of the problem that you have is that um, it, 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 can, it limits the action to a couple of sort of isolated moments over the course of what might be three hours. And you have to be bought in to the sort of premise of baseball to f- sort of find the joy in that, or at least be taught to find the joy in that. And I think that for fans who um, maybe aren't playing baseball as kids at quite a, as high rate as they used to and have other competition in the entertainment space, um, that that can be a deterrent. But I don't know. I think you probably don't have to uh, know very much about baseball to know that Madison Bumgarner hitting two home runs uh, on opening day is a good thing. Um, I think that where you really see the game slowing down isn't necessarily in strikeouts and home runs, but in all of the sort of little stuff in the interstitial moments between pitches, right? So all the pickoff throws uh, to first, the guy at home plate messing with his batting gloves and readjusting because if he gets that just right, it's going to, you know, change the complexion of the at-bat for him. So I think those smaller moments are really where we're seeing a lot of the slowdown and they're a little harder to legislate. So um, I, 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 I understand the concern on Manfred's part, but I also wonder if he's maybe looking in the wrong spots. Let's end with a guy who is maybe the most interesting player in the major leagues, if extremely far from the best, and that's Christian Betancourt, who made the San Diego Padres roster as both a position player 
and a pitcher. Um, this guy is not Shohei Otani, the uh, Japanese player who we eagerly await his major league debut, who's like Babe Ruth as a hitter and uh, – Babe Ruth as a pitcher, maybe? I don't know. We might be exaggerating there. Go read but, John Wertheim's uh, piece about him, <laughs> by the way. But anyway, be- Ben Court at this point feels like a novelty. And I'm wondering, Meg, if you think um, he's going to be helpful to the Padres, if you think he's the start of a trend or an outlier. Well, I, I will say the poor guy has had a rough go of it early on. Um, I think it would be hard to find a worse pitching line <laughs> than the one he has put up so far. Um, I I think that p- two-way players are, are really cool and fun when they're amazing at both things. And I think the, the problem that we have with Bethancourt is that, you know, he came in last year as a, a catcher and an outfielder who would pitch on occasion and that's really cool and fun because we, you know, position players pitching is that r- rare moment in baseball where any outcome is a good outcome, right? If the guy's amazing, then we are thrilled that this guy who is sort of chipping in in a weird moment and doing something that he's not trained to do does it well. And if he does it terribly, you know, he he's not really doing his job and he's taking one for the team and we can kind of laugh along with him and and know that that moment is bad. But like he's a, you know, he's a catcher who's pitching. Like what are our expectations? And Bethancourt's doing a different thing now. Like our expectation of him has changed because he has changed categories. We are going to evaluate his pitching as a pitcher and right now he's a pretty bad reliever but he also plays for the Padres and that's a team that's full of pretty bad pitchers although their bullpen is decent so uh, you know he might be fun but I think we're going to rapidly approach a a period where um, he's bad enough that we sort of feel bad laughing at him and wish he could just go back to pitching or to catching. There really are very few examples of this in the history of Major League Baseball though aren't there? Uh, Players that stay on a roster for a full season and do both jobs. I I stumbled across one this week because I was looking into my favorite topic which is single digit pitchers Um, (laughs) and there are seven Paul Lucas uh, discovered there were seven, ESPN discovered there were seven on major league rosters right now with a possible eighth uh, coming up from the minors, which would be the most since 1946, I determined. And one of the guys I I came across was a a guy named Johnny O'Brien, who played second base shortstop and pitched full time for the uh, for the for the Pirates in the mid 1950s. It doesn't happen very often because generally you'll see a guy uh, be you know, noticeably better at one thing or the other. And I think especially now as, um, you know, players are sort of pushed to specialize earlier and earlier, um, particularly on the pitching side, um, it just doesn't, just doesn't happen very often. And I think that part of the intrigue of Otani potentially coming over is that uh, we want to see if he's truly as good at both things and then whether that is going to butt up against the convention um, of most major league teams where they don't want to risk injury to really good pitchers and might not let him, um, you know, play the field or DH on days that he's not scheduled to start. So it, it's it, it's intriguing because we see it so rarely. And I, I uh, understand the appeal and also think that um, Christian Bethencourt will leave us hoping for the next guy. Meg Rowley is a writer for Baseball Prospectus. On some days, she pities Christian Bethencourt. Some days... She cheers for him. Thank you very much uh, for coming on the show, Meg. Thanks for having me.
Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. John Calipari has led college basketball teams to either six or four Final Fours, depending on if you count the banners the NCAA forced UMass and Memphis to take down on account of rule-breaking during his tenure at each school. At Kentucky, he won his first national championship in 2012 behind Anthony Davis. Two years before that, the Wildcats had five players, John Wall, DeMarcus Cousins, Patrick Patterson, Eric Bledsoe, and Daniel Orton, taken in the first round of the NBA draft, which Calipari said was the greatest moment in the history of the storied basketball program. That attitude that his job is to prepare players, many of whom stay in school for just one year, for a professional career— has made Calipari an enemy to many of his fellow coaches, particularly the fogeyish ones. That dynamic is on display in One and Not Done, the new documentary from ESPN's 30 for 30 series directed by Jonathan Hawk. In this clip, you'll hear longtime UConn coach Jim Calhoun lament Calipari's influence on the game, and that will be followed in the clip by Calipari's response. John has been allowed where he sold kids on a dream. I think is a major, major mistake. The game would be so much more stable if these kids who are greatly talented, and I understand their economics, but could go another year or two for the game. I'm dealing with someone's child. People, if it's not their child, will say that kid should be in school four years, get his college education, because that's all this is about. Well, is it about education or jobs? If you want to hear more, and you should, because it's a really good film, uh, One and Not Done premieres on ESPN on Thursday, April 13th at 9 p.m. Eastern. Joining us now to discuss is the director and the guy whose idea Pesca Jeopardy was. Got to give him credit for that. John Hawk. Hey, John. Uh, Hi, Josh. It's a dubious distinction given Mike's (laughs) performance, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take credit nonetheless. I'd like to start... Um, just coming off of that clip, we can get to the UMass and Memphis and Nets stuff later, which is actually like a pretty substantial chunk of the film compared to his Kentucky tenure. But the thing that fascinates me the most about Calipari is that his message now is, I'm a dream fulfiller. That was the end of his Hall of Fame speech, is that these guys want to go to the NBA, and it is my job to get them to the NBA. It's not my job to win championships. So my question to you is, do you have a sense of whether he buys what he's selling? Because getting these one-and-done guys is not a bad way to try to win a championship. Well, that's the essence of John Calipari right there, to find a, a narrative to describe what you're doing that is, you know, on its face noble and admirable and to which... He's committed and, and, and works truly very, very hard, as hard as anybody I've seen. And at the same time, it's self-serving, 100%. So uh, 
this is what makes Calipari such a divisive figure, I think, because both narratives are true. Uh, you know, the, the people who love him have a point, and the people who hate him have a point. Um, I, think, I think where you come down on Calipari says maybe more about you than it does about Calipari. I mean, what, what Calipari has really done is, throughout his career, he's identified a market inefficiency and capitalized on it. He did it at UMass when he took on other coaches, the, these venerable coaches, and got under their skin and challenged their gentleman's agreement process on recruiting. And he's done it now at Kentucky with the one and done. What pisses off Jim Calhoun more than anything is that it's made Jim Calhoun's job harder. It's made all of the top coaches' jobs harder because Calipari figured out a way to hoard the best talent and win championships and continue to replenish it. Win championships, singular. Singular. <laughs> you know, uh, it's what John Thompson says in the film. If, if I were coaching today, I wouldn't like John. What the hell would I like him for? Uh, he, he does make everything difficult. And Bill Self says it in the film as well, that Kentucky has put a lot of pressure on the rest of us to change the way we do business. And, and Bill Self doesn't think it's been good for the game. And Calipari takes the game out of the equation. And I think that's sort of the key to the moral logic of John Calipari, is that he takes every complicating factor out of the equation in order to go all in on whatever he's going all in on. So if the idea is that the rule says all these players who might have come out of high school or thought they could have come out of high school are committed to only going to college for the required one year so they can get to the NBA as quickly as possible, he's going to exploit that rule, a rule he didn't create, although many people think he somehow created it. It's the NBA's rule that, that the NBA and its Players Association created to protect their business interests. But the point is, with, with Calipari's logic, he is... Uh, taking all the complicating factors out. So this is what the kids want. He is going to help them get that. And anything else that might matter to you, such as, well, the name on the front of the jersey, Kentucky, is more important than the name on the back of the jersey, whether it's Monk or Fox or, or Murray or Bissier or, or Davis or Wall or Cousins or or Booker, or Towns, or any of these guys. Uh, and, and, and what he, Cal will do is pronounce that competing factor as nonsense, like he did it on the draft night where he said uh, that um, it's more important to send guys to the NBA than to win championships. So Calipari succeeded as a college basketball co coach before the one-and-done rule, was in place. And what he did at UMass is one of the most impressive coaching jobs, rebuilding jobs, however you want to term it, in the modern history of the game. As you document in the film, before he got there, they had won something like three and two games in the previous two seasons. The like history there of Dr. J had long since passed, and it's just this moribund program in a place they're Nobody really wants to go. Yeah. And Cal was a 29-year-old assistant coach at Pitt when he took the job. 
And he built it into not only one of the best programs in the country, making the Final Four in 1996 was the culmination, but like one of the coolest programs too, just by kind of sheer force of will. Like when I was in high school, UMass was like not that far off from like UNLV or Michigan in terms of like the it factor that the program had. And that even more than anything else he's done in his career, I think is testament to his force of will, his personality, and the skills that he brings to bear in in this job. I think what Cal did at UMass is, in terms of his Hall of Fame, those are his Kofax years. Those are his years where, in in a short amount of time, take a five, six-year period, I think he was there eight years, but take take those, those five years or six years when they became a national power, uh, is as, as incredibly great a coaching job as anybody's ever done in college basketball. Now, the 20 years since, he's been a very successful coach, and you do that for 30 years, you get into the Hall of Fame. But, but the, the excitement and the force of his personality, uh, especially as a first-time head coach, was uh, in 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 a in an era that was a great era for college basketball. It, it's it's not uh, like today where you know the level of play is so so, and the guys you know the, the best players are all gone after a year. That was when I mean it was awesome. I mean you had Tim Duncan against Camby. Uh, you know, one week, and and you know, you just, uh, you know, that was the the era of the Leitners and the and the and and all those those sort of legendary NCAA games, and and he held the number one ranking at UMass for the better part of two seasons. I mean, Matt, UMass, it's like Fordham. Well, the the complicating factor there is now in retrospect, and you obviously get into this in the movie, if you ask people that aren't familiar closely with that era, they will tell you, oh, they cheated. You know, Marcus Camby, they had to, they had to vacate the final four. Obviously, Cal knew. And this is the, this is the, the, the conflict that emerges over the course of Cal's career, is that it's very easy to look at what Cal's done and for people, for detractors to say, well, he obviously cheated. I mean, he must have known that Marcus Camby was taking gifts. He must have known that um, Derrick Rose didn't take his SAT legitimately. Um, but the reason I think that builds up is it really reflected in the film in when you interviewed Phil Martelli, the coach at St. Joseph's, who talks about the difference between arrogance and confidence that is the embodiment of Cal's personality. I mean, Cal got successful, John, because he was a great recruiter. You know, his first big land was a kid named Bobby Martin at Pitt, whom you interview and you talk about in the movie, who had committed to Villanova and then changed his mind. Cal was accused of violating the Big East gentleman's agreement at the time and going after Bobby Martin after he had already committed. But there are two quotes from players that I think sum up who Cal is and why he was able to, to be so successful in those early years. One is Bobby Martin saying Cal could talk a starving dog off the back of a meat truck. And the other was Marcus Canby saying he can sell water to a well. Cal, I think, was born to do two things. One, 
is sell. He's the most natural salesman I've ever been around. I don't hang around used car lots, but I imagine, uh, I imagine that that's how he comes off to a lot of people. And he is always selling. Uh, if he's selling something that's a good thing, you know, so be it. But he's still selling, and you feel the sell when when you're with him. Uh, the other thing Cal was born to do is fight. He is the most natural fighter that I've known, that I've, I've spent a lot of time with. Um, uh, uh, I'm always amazed at how his favorite place to be, or at least the place he gravitates to, is the place where there's one prize in the room, and there are two of us in the room, and all the doors are locked, and only one of us is going to get that thing. And he believes it's going to be him, and he's going to do whatever it takes to get that thing. And uh, he does, he's not shy about that. You know, the sanctimony of college sports that so many coaches who feel the same way Cal does, and, and at that level they're all very, very competitive uh, and very, very powerful people. Uh, Cal doesn't pretend uh, that that's not what he's about. He doesn't hide behind the sanctimony of the programs, uh, you know, the, the, the game. moral superiority of his program or anything like that. Uh, this, is, this is a battle, and we're going to win it. All right, so we started with Jim Calhoun. Let's uh, bookend this with John Cheney. And I remembered this because it was just such a crazy episode from Calipari's tenure at UMass, and Temple was their big rival, the coach there, John Cheney. And they got into disputes back and forth for years. And, and Cheney was a legend. And Cal was this 30-something kid. So they had been involved in a dispute during a game about Calipari working the refs or whatnot. And Calipari has this post-game presser. And John Cheney just comes charging in. And you'll probably be able to hear this in the audio. But he threatens to kill Calipari. <laughs> Let's listen to the clip. We were in the press conference and Coach Cal was at the podium speaking and all of a sudden the doors bust open and who comes in but uh, Coach Cheney and he had a few choice words for Coach Cal. And here you get a hell of a job right here today. Good job. Three class guys and you pick them out and single them out. You can't get any of them to threaten the guys. Shut up, guys. You can't get any of them And the the visual there is such a great metaphor for his career because Calipari is just standing there and Cheney is just going absolutely batshit and he's just like like totally placid as the entire world as his as Calipari's actions just make everyone else around him in his profession just lose their minds. That and and he he, he, he that was deliberate. You know, that was strategic. He wanted to unsettle everybody. And uh, he knew that if, if I could get the other coach thinking about me and not thinking about the game, that gave me an advantage in the game. And if Temple is the number one team in the country at that time, and I need to beat them, then I'm going to use this tactic to 
get under John Cheney's skin so that he's distracted and, and we have a better chance of beating them. And I think Cal loves that about himself. I think his ability to, I think he thrives on it. I think he, he needs it. And he, you'll see if, there, if a few weeks go by and, and nobody's giving him a hard time about one thing or another or he's not getting bashed by one thing, he's going to pick a fight with somebody. He's going to say something and then maybe pretend he didn't say it. But he's going to say something just to get under somebody's skin so some people will start writing bad articles about him and he gets to be the black hat. And he says he doesn't like being the black hat and he doesn't deserve it, but he loves it because A, he's getting the attention, and B, he is, uh, he is just in his natural state uh, this, this hyper-competitive, combative, almost violent state that he thrives in. The movie is one and not done. It is premiering on ESPN on Thursday night, April 13th at 9 p.m. Eastern. John Hawk, stick around for a minute. We'll do some more in our Slate Plus bonus segment. But thanks for, you know, not leaving in the middle of this segment either. <laughs> thanks. Thank you for not throwing me out. That is all the show we've got for you today. We've got four segments. Yeah. So, uh, Don't write us about no afterballs. We're, we're introducing an afterball scarcity policy because, you know, the ratings are down. We want to, uh, you know, in, increase uh, the fervor among the fan base for afterballs. They'll be back. Uh, we would love your feedback from what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe in iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan on Facebook at facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Our intern is Adam Willis. Our producer is Patrick Fort. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zombo Beatty, and thanks for listening.